Let's open God's word. Uh, This morning, our first reading is Isaiah 53. It's on page 735. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We, all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent." So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, And cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the greats. And he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, transgressions. Sorry. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And now we turn over to Revelation chapter 5. And I'm reading uh, 1 to 7. The scroll and the lamb. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne.
Thanks, Steph, and good morning, everyone. My name's Cam Maxwell. I'm one of the staff here. Uh, it's great to be uh, coming, uh, so opening up with you Revelation chapter 5 this morning. Please keep that open. Uh, we're going to be looking uh, at the first seven verses Steph read for us, uh, and next week we're going to be finishing off this series in Revelation, looking at the remainder of the chapter. Hope is something very powerful, isn't it? Uh, hope is often what gets people through those really tough times of life. You know, the student uh, who's struggling through school looks for life beyond school. Workers hope that retirement will be worth all the work. Carlton supporters hope that next year will be you know, slightly better than this year. We all hope for a future with uh, better lives or um, perhaps yeah, something, something we can look forward to. Now, politicians, they know this. They know how powerful hope is, don't they? Vote for me, vote for me, and I'll make your future better. I'll make sure you get the job or the tax break or the new road. You can package it however you want, but it's the same message that every politician rolls out. Place your hope in me, and I'll give you what you need to make your future better. Just vote for me, give me the power to make your life better, and I'll, I'll do it. That's where the catch is, isn't it? See, if we want to see our hopes realised, we need power to do that, or someone needs power to change the current situation. Someone needs the power to make changes in the world, like, you know, the power to build a new hospital, or the power to sign a peace treaty that means something. See, power is the ability to change something. And so if we hope for a better future, the deal that we as Australians make with our government is, like, sure, We'll give you all the power, you just make our dreams come true. That's the deal. 2,000 years ago, uh, the Roman Empire ruled a huge chunk of the world. About a third of the world's population, apparently, uh, lived in uh, the Roman Empire. And the Romans, they knew how powerful hope is. They knew how important it was to give their people hope so they could maintain their power. What Rome wanted everyone to think, everyone who lived under their rule, was... Actually, having Rome rule isn't too bad. Let's leave it this way, it's good. So some uh, marketing genius uh, in the Roman Empire came up with what is a brilliant slogan. Um, now, I have no, no Latin. This is the only Latin I've ever learnt. Pax Romana. Have you heard that before? Pax Romana. One or two nods. The peace of Rome. The peace of Rome. Um, it's a brilliant piece of uh, propaganda because the idea is, under Roman rule there will be peace. No more pirates, no more bandits robbing you on the roads, no more wars, never mind the fact there's no more wars because we've crushed everyone to death, that's details, there'll be no more war, it's peace. So the message of Pax Romana is, stay with us and peace and prosperity will be yours. The only catch, we get to rule, we get to have all the power. That might be all well and good, of course, for, for many Romans, except if you, you know, you live in the Roman Empire, and you had heard about a Jewish rabbi. He's a guy who the Romans had killed to keep the peace. But then you heard that uh, some people who knew this guy, they, they saw him alive again. He came, he came back to life. This guy, Jesus, he came back to life, and now he has all the power. He gets to rule everything, not Rome. If you're a Christian in the Roman Empire, your belief about Jesus was a threat to the peace of Rome. And that put the church on a, a collision course with the really brutal power of Rome, actually. 
Revelation, Revelation was written to Christians living in this context. The power of Rome was threatening their future, actually. In that situation, where does the church find hope? Like, we need to remember, they're a tiny minority group. They don't have property. They don't have any laws protecting them. Where do they find hope? Where will they find the power to change their situation? What we're looking at today in Revelation 5, I think, deeply challenges deeply challenges the way we think about power and will hopefully help us all face a future, not with a sort of a timid, vague hope about maybe it will get better, but facing a future with a confident and unshakable hope about what lies ahead for God's people. A Revelation can be a bit of a strange book. Um, it's written in a very particular style. So if you've just joined us this morning and you've never read Revelation before or you've just uh, missed uh, the past couple of weeks, um, what's helpful to know is that Revelation is written in a very particular style that uses imagery and symbolism very heavily. Uh, the idea is the author here is trying to paint sort of a mental picture for us. We're not supposed to take every sort of thing literally, and we'll see some examples of that in a second. Uh, the author here, just he wants us to understand that he, he's seen something otherworldly. And he's trying to describe things that are actually pretty hard to describe. Uh, last, last two weeks, we've been looking at chapter 4. And the author, John, he's been taken behind the scenes of what we can normally see. So the curtains of the universe are pulled back, and John is brought into the throne room of heaven. If you have your Bibles open, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 4, uh, as John gets taken to heaven, he's told, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So if you're an early century, first century Christian, you're wondering, what will John have to tell us about the future, the things that must take place? Same question for us, right? What will we learn about the future? Well, let's, let's have a look. Uh, we'll jump into chapter 5, verse 1, and uh, John sees a scroll. It's in the right hand of the one on the throne. We're not told here really what the, thro- what the scroll has written on it. I'm not really sure what the scroll is supposed to represent at first, and it's, I think it's fine as we first read this, what's this all about? What's the scroll? We can keep reading the next couple of verses, and you realise the scroll's kind of a big deal. Whatever it means, it's pretty important. Well, like so many things that seem strange at first, uh, we need to remember the context, or what's just come before, um, which is, John is in the throne room, about to see what must take place. That's the context, and then as we keep reading Revelation, what we'll see is that from chapter 6, especially onwards, uh, as the scroll, this scroll gets opened, the events of history unfold. So this scroll actually represents God's plans for history. What we see in Revelation is that um, these plans hold um, everything in store, such that what might look like chaos and destruction for us well, it's all actually within God's sovereign plan. And God's plan, ultimately, is to bring redemption. He's going to bring redemption and He's going to bring judgment. What God's doing is bringing about an entirely new creation, a glorious creation. Everything will be better. There will be no more dying, no more danger, no more crying. That's redemption. God's plan is also to deal with injustice, with evil and oppression. He won't let those things go on forever. He will bring judgment. So God's plans for our ultimate future, our eternity, 
they're glorious and wonderful plans. Time and time again in Scripture, we see His promises that we will live entirely peacefully, entirely joyfully, entirely in God's presence. That's the future. And between now and that eternity, there are lots of things that must take place. Those things take place as God achieves His purposes, as He brings about redemption and judgment. Okay, that's the scroll. God's wonderful plans. There's a problem. I hope you noticed this. There's a problem. They're sealed. They're sealed. Now, they're sealed with seven seals. In Revelation, the number seven gets used a lot. Uh, The basic idea is number seven represents wholeness or completeness. And so God's plans are completely sealed. It's a bit odd, isn't it? When you sort of think about this. If God has plans, like, why doesn't he just go and do it? Like, why does he bother to write it all down and then seal it? Like, it's a bit strange. Why, if, why doesn't God just do what he wants to? Well, again, we need to remember we're dealing with symbols and imagery. So, let's picture this. We have someone sitting on the throne. They have orders. What must happen? He writes his orders down. And he seals those orders with his royal seal. He stamps them saying that these are authentic and these have my authority. Once he's done that, what does, what does the king on the throne do? Any king then gives those orders to someone else to carry out his orders, to achieve his plans. That's what any king would do. He gives someone else authority, someone he trusts, to carry out his plans. So that's what's happening here. The one on the throne has plans for the future, and the question is, who's he going to give these plans to? Who's going to carry out what God wants? Maybe one of the angels? Maybe John? You know, he's been brought up here. Maybe he'll get to do some cool stuff. Well, perhaps the scroll should get passed to, you know, the emperor of Rome, the most powerful man in the planet. He'd be a good guy to do it all. You'd think he's got the power. Well, verse 2. A mighty angel steps forward and we think, oh great, maybe this is the one, maybe he's the one that's um, strong enough to carry out God's plans. But no, this angel just asks the question, who is worthy? Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who is worthy to carry out, to execute God's plans? Notice though that the question he asks isn't actually about power, is it? The angel doesn't ask who's powerful enough He has the power to do this. No, he asks, who is worthy? Who is worthy to take on this sort of power? Who is trustworthy enough to handle all the power that comes with executing God's plans? Now, the short answer, no one. We get a slightly longer answer to make it very, very clear. Verse 3, no one in heaven, no one on earth, and no one under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. No one, anywhere, ever, is worthy to carry out God's plans. So that's just pausing and thinking like, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? Not a single person, no brilliant general or politician, no great scientist, no one can deliver God's amazing future. Like, we get promised so much by so many people, you know, better environment, more justice, better health, no wars. Ultimately, no one can deliver what our hearts really long for, true joy and peace being with God. 
The fact that no one is worthy tells us something pretty damning uh, about us, doesn't it? It says there's no one human capable, no one able. We're all flawed. Even the most brilliant people, they can't do it. I certainly can't. This is a pretty humbling moment to face up to. Just imagine for a second if that's how the book of Revelation finished. No one's worthy, game over, go home. That's an absolute catastrophe. It's devastating. John weeps in verse 4. John weeps and weeps and weeps because no one was found worthy enough to take the scroll. No one's even worthy to peek inside it. John wails. It's, it's a disaster. Can you kind of feel what John feels at this point? If that scroll doesn't get opened, there is no hope for a better future. All God's promises to his people to be with us forever, to fix our broken world, to fix us, all those promises are for nothing. Perhaps just as bad, if that scroll doesn't get opened, there is there's no point to the suffering that we experience. See, John, the guy who wrote this, he personally knew people who were killed for being Christian. I think if that scroll doesn't get opened, was that for nothing? Was there any meaning to their death, any purpose? Well, no, if that scroll remains closed, there is no meaning to any history. It just happens. God's not in control. There's no plan. There's no purpose. It's just chaos and, you know, maybe luck. Suffering will happen and that's just tough. Too bad. No purpose, no future. Can you imagine? It's a disaster of all disasters. There's a future without a hope. But, verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and it's seven sealed. Seven seals. Finally, good. We found someone. There is someone worthy after all. So we can stop crying. It's okay. There is hope. It's a pretty strange way to describe the one who's worthy, isn't it? It's a strange kind of description. A lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. It's no surprise to most of us, I hope, um, if you're listening to the kids talk, this is a description of Jesus. Sorry if I just ruined kind of the suspense for you at that point. It's Jesus, but it's such a strange description, isn't it? Like, why does Jesus get described like this? What does it mean? Well, um, if, you're having, if you have a good study Bible at home or just any good commentary worth reading, what they'll do is they'll point you to other parts of Scripture where this description gets used of Jesus. So what we're going to do, just very briefly, is have a look at two spots in the Bible uh, where the same kind of description is used of Jesus, because that'll help us uh, understand why Revelation 5 describes him like this. Uh, So this should be up on the screen. Uh, This is Genesis 49. Uh, This is right back, almost the start of the Bible. Um, Now, this is where Jacob, uh, Jacob, one of the patriarchs, anyone know what else is Jacob called? Israel. So Jacob, who's also known as Israel, he has 12 sons who go on to be the 12 tribes of Israel. At this point, Israel, Jacob, is talking to each of his sons and blessing them. And he says to his son Judah, verse 8, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You're a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness who tears rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he, to whom it belongs, shall come. And the obedience of the nations shall be his. 
Okay, so Judah is described as a, as a lion, powerful and mighty. Who dares rouse him? Power, right? Verse 10, though, it's a critical verse. There's a promise here that through Judah, one of his descendants will come. He will hold the scepter and the staff as a king. And he'll be a mighty king who rules over all the nations. It's a promise right back in Genesis, right at the start of the Bible. The Lion of Judah, he will come. He'll rule on the throne over the nations. And God actually, uh, later on, makes a very similar promise that he himself will rise up a king, a king who will rule on God's behalf. Uh, We're going to have a look here at Isaiah chapter 11. It's a fantastic chapter. We're going to sort of skip through a few verses. This is verse 1, chapter 11 of Isaiah. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Okay, there's sort of Revelation 5 kind of language there. Who's Jesse? Jesse's the father of King David. Okay, so this is someone from the line of David will come along. And he'll be a king. Let's see how Isaiah describes this king. Well, let's, we'll pick it up in verse 4, if you're reading in your Bible. This king, this is what he'll be like. With righteousness, he'll judge the needy. With justice, he'll give decisions for the poor of the earth. He'll strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he'll slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The lion will live with the lamb. Sorry, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. Let's get down to verse 9. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. So here we have a picture, this, this line of Judah, this great king, the promised Messiah, he's the one that's going to come and fulfill all of God's plans. He'll give us a new creation where the wolf and the lamb somehow get along. There'll be peace and justice for everyone. Everyone will know God. That's what that king will do, a great king who will rule the entire world. So we jump back now to Revelation chapter 5 with those kind of ideas in mind, those really big ideas about this king. When John hears that the Lion of Judah has triumphed, the Root of David has triumphed, The idea here is that God's king, he's come. The promised one has done it. He's completely victorious. So he has all the power. He's conquered all the enemies. And of course, and you know, of course he has, right? He's a lion. He's powerful. So you can't imagine that this this powerful king, it's going to be a piece of cake from here. All of God's plans will just fall out easy as anything. Brilliant, right? The lion's in charge. It's good news. Kind of imagines John, who's been weeping, starts sort of drying his eyes. He sort of wants to see this, this amazing lion king. So he looks around in verse 6, he sees a lamb looking like it's been slain. Got to say, that's a bit of an anticlimax. Bit of an anticlimax. Instead of a super impressive, you know, powerful lion that's, you know, it's a pathetic lamb. Powerless. Doesn't even look very tough or healthy. It's kind of ridiculous, actually, isn't it? 
expecting a lion and, and getting a lamb? Like, how can this lamb be the one that rules the universe? He looks mortally wounded. It's fascinating, though, that this is the last time in Revelation the lion gets mentioned. From here on in, the lamb, this weak, sick-looking lamb, takes center, stri- take center stage. Now, it sounds strange, doesn't it? But of course, it's not really a lamb. John sees a lamb and he tells us it is a lamb, but again, it's imagery, it's symbolism. John knows the lamb represents Jesus, and that becomes very clear as we continue reading. Jesus isn't actually a lamb, by the way. I just want to say, Jesus isn't a lamb. It doesn't even look like one. Uh, when he rose from the dead, he has a body, just like ours. Much better, but he has a human body. So, the use of a lamb here, the image of a lamb, it, it's getting us to think about something else. The lamb has seven eyes and seven horns. It's pretty strange. Um, but again, that's part of the style of Revelation. It's a way of saying that Jesus sees everything. And the horn is a symbol of power all through the Bible. It's a way of saying he is all-powerful, all-seeing, all-powerful. Don't worry, Jesus doesn't look this weird, it's fine. What this image is doing, this image of a lamb, it completely messes with our ideas about power. And it tells us what we really should be putting our hope in. The lamb that looked like it was slain vividly tells us that the cross of Jesus was the most important thing that happened in history. See, we're told that the lion has triumphed. That's already happened. Yeah, he's won the victory, but, but how? Well, it turns out the lion won the victory by being the lamb that was slain. This powerful lion is actually powerful as the lamb. Jesus, he's won the victory and the power not despite the cross, but because of his suffering on the cross. We need to think about this a bit. It's so back to front, it kind of messes us up a bit, I think. So, crucifixion was the most degrading way to die. Shameful. It was dehumanizing. Actually, the whole idea is your humanity is taken away, your power gets taken from you. You die exposed in front of everyone, making fun of you. It was such a shameful way to die that the Romans used it as a very powerful tool. They were sending a message, actually, saying, don't mess with us, don't mess with Rome, otherwise you'll be like this guy on the cross. Don't challenge our power, or that'll be you. So Rome actually crucified thousands of people. They took away their power. And they showed them who's truly in charge. If you want to show someone who's in charge, crucify them. <laughs> Sends a very powerful message, doesn't it? So Jesus on the cross, he looks weak, he looks defeated by the power of Rome. But what makes Christianity so unique and so wonderful is that Jesus on the cross is unbelievably powerful because he went to the cross. See, while the Romans were laughing about crucifying the king of the Jews, and they did, they really did crucify the king of the Jews, but while they crucified him, thinking they were taking his power away, it's on the cross that Jesus triumphs. It's on the cross with incredible power that Jesus gives us real hope. How does this work? Well, we need to come back to what's the ultimate problem? What's the ultimate problem? Why do we need hope at all? 
Why do we need hope? Well, it's because the world sucks. The world's broken. We're broken. And so we suffer. We, we break relationships. The environment keeps killing us. People kill each other. The world's completely broken. And that's the story of the Bible. That's how it starts. And we need hope. We need to look forward to a better future because sin has broken everything. See, God created a good world. It's a good world. It was designed to give Him glory, and it does. But the story with Adam and Eve, like the story is that they were supposed to rule over creation on God's behalf and give Him all the glory, give Him all the praise, give Him all the power. But Adam and Eve, well, they try and keep the power and the glory for themselves. Completely wrecks everything. That whole relationship is, is destroyed. The, the relationship we're designed to have with God is broken. Because sin is rebellion. It's not giving God what He deserves, it's, it's taking it for ourselves. And sin wrecks that relationship with God. It wrecks the one relationship the one relationship we are supposed to enjoy with absolute delight. And sin is such a big problem. As we keep reading through the story of the Bible, we see it doesn't have a simple fix. Throughout the Old Testament, we see sin is such a big problem um, so that God gives us signs that keep showing us like, what it takes to fix this massive problem. So one example, um, as God saved His people from Egypt, they're in slavery in Egypt, He redeems them. What God does as He passes judgment on Egypt, every, every household that wanted to be spared that judgment killed a lamb. They killed a lamb, a Passover lamb. That lamb gets slain so that others wouldn't be. It's a sign, actually, a sign showing us that God's redemption and judgment all happen on the cross where a lamb gets slain. And later on, as God makes Israel His chosen nation, He gives them a whole sort of intricate sacrificial system. There's huge chunks of the Bible dedicated to explaining how this works. The basic idea is there's blood everywhere. Uh, if you were a priest working in the temple, like you must have constantly been soaked in blood. You're just killing animals. That's basically your job. Pretty gory, right? Day after day, you're killing animals. There's blood everywhere. Killing all sorts of animals, especially lambs, especially lambs. See, sin is such a big problem, it requires this, this constant reminder that sin is so bad, for justice, there needs to be death. You know it's a big problem when it, <laughs> you fix it by paying in blood, right? Now, the, the constant death of animals, especially lambs, it constantly reminded Israel that, well, they could be spared God's judgment through death and blood. Thousands and thousands of lambs, year after year, they get slain. And all of them, all those lambs point to the ultimate solution, the real solution for sin. Now, we heard this promise in the first passage we had read together. So Isaiah 53, it's one of the most well-loved passages of the Bible. It's pointing Israel forward to a time when there will be someone who will be slaughtered like a sheep, a person, slaughtered like a sheep, and that one person that innocent person, by their suffering, they pay for the sins of many. They would fix the ultimate problem. And so, we would have sure and certain hope. Now, this is exactly what Jesus does on the cross. 
Jesus himself was perfectly innocent. He was sinless, and yet he stands in for us. He subs in. He stands in the place of those who are guilty. And so it's by his blood, the blood of the eternal Son of God. Well, that's, that's powerful blood, right? It's by his blood. He, like he, as he sheds it, he frees us. He frees us from this problem of sin and the way that God's judgment and righteous wrath are directed against sin. Jesus the Lamb was slain. He takes on all the wrath that we deserve and He redeems us, fulfilling God's judgment. The cross is the symbol of true power. Not like Roman power, but of God's power. God's power to fix the problem of sin. What it says is the cross reshapes our thinking about what power really is. I think most of us, uh, if we don't spend much time thinking about it, um, we tend to think like Romans. We tend to think that you can kind of seize power and can use it to control others so they do what we want. I think that's most, how most people in our world think about power. But the cross, the cross shows us that God's power is so radically different. With Jesus, there's, there's a humility and a selflessness. He doesn't seek to control others. Great power is used to love others, to serve others. Jesus isn't trying to seize power and glory for himself on the cross. Instead, he's laying his claims aside to those things to give all the praise, all the glory to his heavenly Father. The lamb that was slain the cross of Jesus, it confronts us. It confronts us because it shows us that we can, you know, we can either try and seize power like Rome does, we try and seize it and cling to it, and perhaps with our own power, try and make our own future amazing. Thinking we're powerful enough to get over the problem of sin, the problem of death. The alternative is that we can give it all up. We can submit our lives humbly to the will of God the Father, and when we do that, we know that He has the power. He has all the power to to fulfill His promises of a sure and wonderful eternity with Him. Because of the cross, we have certain certain hope, eternity, our future, it will be better. What the image of the Lamb does here in Revelation it assures us that the suffering that we experience and you know, our own weaknesses and that the insecurities we have, the acute awareness of our insignificance, it's okay. In fact, we should probably expect those things to be part of life. We will suffer. We will look insignificant. But that's okay. God achieves His plans through suffering, through weakness, That's a great comfort, isn't it? We don't need to be the smartest. We don't have to have it all together. We don't need to be influential. Because God's power is at work. He's defeated sin, and so as history unfolds, as history unfolds, we have nothing to worry about. From the time of the cross until the time where we see Jesus again, there is nothing in history that's going to be a problem for us. I reckon you would have noticed um, our passage today, um, as Steph was reading it out, it sort of stops in verse 7. Feels like, oh, odd place to stop. Kind of feels like a cliffhanger as you know, the lamb comes forward and he takes the scroll from the right hand of the one on the throne. Don't know how a lamb does that, by the way, if he uses his little lamb paws or takes in his mouth, I don't know. 
But as he does that, on the one hand, it feels like that's a strange place to stop. Like, what happens next? He's got the scroll. What's going to happen? And the short answer is, we'll come back next week as we see that all of heaven just goes nuts worshipping the Lamb. But on the other hand, this is not really a cliffhanger at all. I reckon you could almost finish the book of Revelation at chapter 5, verse 7. The Lamb's got the scroll. He's going to get it done. There's no doubt about our future from here. You could just say the rest is details. Thankfully, God has far more to say to us in the book of Revelation, so we'll keep reading that. But do you see my point? The cross means we have nothing to worry about. We will go through trials and tribulations. Those are things that must take place as God's plan unfolds. And so as that happens, we can and we should look forward to the time that God promises when all things will be made right. And we should always be looking to the lamb that was slain. Great humility, great weakness, knowing where true power comes from. So would you join me as I lead us in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed to us your great love and power through the cross of Jesus. Please help us always to come back to the cross. Please keep confronting us with how back to front it is, how different it is the way we often think about power and weakness. We thank you so much for the cross, Jesus. Thank you that in what looks like weakness and shame is power and glory. Please use our weakness. Please give us great humility. Please work your mighty power through each one of us that we might bring you much honour and glory, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.